All right. So th this th this this chapter we're on chapter four. Does that sound right, Stephen? Yeah, four. We're on chapter four in the book written by William Osborne on divine blessings. Um, and uh, part of the title of his book is Divine Blessing and the Fullness of Life as We Experience It in God's Presence, because that's where it's found. Well, this chapter begins with the author. He's looking back on a particular time uh, where he was in the midst of a small group gathering and a, a question was asked in that small group. And the question was, if God gives me a car, is he blessing me? He then said that of the dialogue that there was an ensuing volley of answers and lip-biting angst which led him to believe that there is a significant lack of clarity about what it means to experience God's blessing in our lives as Christians. I would agree with that. Um, not everyone, but uh, probably for the most part. Uh, some said in that group, some said it, it wasn't a blessing. Maybe because they thought it was sinful to categorize something like that as a divine blessing. Uh, others, they just didn't know. I'm not saying that, that the group in front of me um, would answer in those ways, but I do think Christendom at large would often say that, especially here in America. Now, the reality is, though, when you look at the face of things on the surface, the Bible seems to present significantly different views when it comes to divine blessing. When you look at how uh, that and the favor that we see in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. It seems like the Old Testament is focused more on the material wealth of things. Um, you know, the health, not only of family, but livestock, right? Or just blessing in, the sin, in terms of the success of the faithful. But the New Testament seems to portray those who are most faithful as those who are martyred or um, imprisoned. It can, it can seem that way on the face of things. Well, the Old Testament seems to celebrate strength and prosperity while the New Testament um, would guide us to, and it certainly does, to give sacrificially um, and to in some way or another publicly acknowledge our own weakness, our need for him in those ways. Certainly, the Bible, um, the astute Bible reader can see these things in the Old Testament, but on the surface, I think many believe that there's that big difference in terms of what blessing looks like from God between the Testaments. But us living on this side of the Christ, you know, how do we navigate what seems on the surface to be this somewhat of a theological divide there? Um, and even if we think confident in knowing the answer to these things, I think there's still an opportunity to learn here as we uh, consider some of the passages that the author used in this chapter to reflect upon those blessings that honestly sometimes, you know, we, we don't see the blessing behind what's happening in our lives. So the goal of this chapter, the author says, in, and also the next one really, is to present a biblically and theologically informed answer 
you know, to this question of Old Testament versus New Testament. What is, what is truly divine blessing in our context, right? Well, let's start off here um, with a proper understanding of what blessing in the Old Testament um, is and was. Uh, the material prosperity and the peace associated with that Old Testament picture of divine blessing, it's not to be understood as an end unto itself. Okay, we think most of us understand that. Um, that is not what the Old Testament is, is telling us. Folks who do get it wrong are uh, among the elk of the prosperity type folk, um, prosperity gospel type people where it's really the blessings are the end game. And God is really more of a conduit to those blessings. How often do you hear that message? Even those that are clearly um, if beyond even cult levels, um, like you would see on Oprah Winfrey or something. Um, I don't even know if she broadcasts anymore, frankly. Um, but um, the, the end game is not the blessings. Um, we don't go through God to get to the blessings uh, at all. God is to be pursued because true blessing is only experienced by living in his presence. And I think the book has done a good job so far in, in stressing that. Uh, well, in the New Testament, it's no different describing what true blessing is as we strive to understand that clearer picture in the Old Testament in the past few weeks. God's people, uh, the author writes, he says, God's people living in God's presence, rightly relating to his sovereign reign, will experience his blessing. So there's that right relationship that's obviously most vital and important. Uh, both the Old and New Testaments. Um, one thing we're going to talk about is the kingdom view of things here. Um, they are inseparable, the Old and New Testaments, and understanding blessing, inseparable from uh, the kingdom of God. The difference to focus on between the two is that in the New Testament, it reveals God's blessing through the initiation of that new covenant made in Christ's blood. And um, how we are benefited that as God's people beyond of what, oh, there was really more of an Old Testament understanding of who God's people were. And that hope of a new creation. All of this is utter, uh, ushered in with the new covenant. Well, it helps to understand the fullness of life in the presence of God in the new covenant by seeing how Jesus fulfills Old Testament scriptures and how those in that fulfillment, how it pointed to that, those, the new covenant and the realities of the new covenant and the new creation as well. The Old Testament does not end on a high note for the Jews, writes Osborne. And we know it doesn't. You know, we've actually gone through the book of Malachi um, and the struggles that they had and true authentic worship and the chastisement that they received. Well, that 400-year gap be between the Testaments, which profoundly, or really not really profoundly, is called the, that intertestamental period, there was a lot of compromise in that period amongst the Jews in their theological understandings of things. Um, especially when they had to deal with foreign oppression. 
You know, they didn't have the promised land anymore like they had in terms of governing it for themselves. One biblical scholar says that, quote, the fundamental Jewish hope was for liberation from oppression. Okay? They were, they were certainly under Rome's thumb. Liberation from oppression for the restoration of the land and for the proper building of the temple. And it's this complex group of expectations that was the direct result of believing on the one hand that Israel's God was the king of the world while facing on the other hand their desolation their what they were experiencing how do they reconcile those things how would Messiah come in and fix all of this as they understood the Old Testament. It was in this context, it was into this context that Jesus entered the world to fulfill the Old Covenant and then therefore bring in the, those end time blessings of his kingdom. So that's the context that we have of Christ coming into the world. So let's think about this and, and, and there's an, this section here in his book called Jesus as the Fulfillment of Israel's Story. Again, the goal, one of the goals of this chapter is how is Christ fulfilling those Old Testament promises? Well, the New Testament starts off by providing a genealogy. Uh, one of Christ's showing his continuity from Abraham to David, that those, of course, starting with Abraham and then making that very clear coming to David and then to Jesus himself, those demarcations of Abraham and David. Well, the first gospel, Matthew, tells how Jesus is stepping in to Abraham's promise of an offspring, how he comes into this view. In Genesis 17, verse 7, it says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then how Christ fulfills David's promise of an, an eternal royal dynasty. Second Samuel seven, verse 16, it says in your house, your kingdom, speaking to David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, Matthew, pointing to Christ in all this. Um, one theologian named uh, R.T. France, he said that the essential key to all of Matthew's theology is that in Jesus, all of God's promises have come to fulfillment. So when you're reading through the book of Matthew, keep that understanding in the back of your mind. One of the things that Matthew is trying to communicate, Christ's fulfillment of these things. It's often found while you're reading in that gospel that familiar phrase, this took place, or this is to fulfill dot, dot, dot. You know, this took place to fulfill whatever. It's a common phrase in Matthew. Well, the apostle is trying to direct his readers to an understanding that Jesus' entire life, including his birth, his death and resurrection, are actually in fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Something that 
Paul always tried to argue when he would go into a new town and enter the synagogue. So Jesus, God's son, for example, he also comes out of Egypt, like Israel did in Matthew 2, verse 15, um, regarding his parents, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. Like Israel through the Red Sea is a picture we have. Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. You know, even seeing Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, for 40 days and, and nights, it calls to the reader to remember Israel's wanderings for 40 years. And Jesus' victory in the wilderness compared to Israel's continued unfaithfulness in the wilderness. Jesus fulfills these things. In Osborne, he explains in his book, he says, we see Jesus as a second Moses. I think some of you may have already have known that, how scripture points this and makes it clear. Uh, Jesus declares plainly in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's the fulfillment of these things. You know, th through both quotation, uh, Osborne's quote, I'm quoting him here. He says, through both quotation and a figural narration, using figurative language, if you will. Matthew's gospel clearly portrays Jesus as the fulfillment of God's old covenant people. For what we do see here in, those, in that gospel, in that narrative, he ushers in the promises for Israel, the true promises, you know, restoration and return from exile, you know, lost sinners, that of the elect. Um, you know, the land, etc., which is for us in eschatological hope in the new earth, new heavens, right? Th these things, they embody their identity and completes Israel's role, calling, vocation. True Israel. Speaking of true Israel, all of God's people. In the same way, we see the Paul, the apostle. He tells the Corinthian church, you know, that his message concerning the Christ did not waver, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Again, Paul would argue these things in the synagogues. They find their yes in Christ. Osborne asks, what does Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament promises mean? What does that mean for God's people? What does his fulfillment mean in regard to the presence of God's kingdom and his blessings? When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he said in Mark 1.15, he said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. No one who understood the Old Testament rightly could argue um, what Jesus was, was trying to do, but yet most didn't see it. 
They needed the Spirit to be able to see these things. The disciples themselves, things didn't become clear until the Spirit came down upon them. Uh, his contemporary readers, Jesus' contemporary readers, they were profoundly influenced by their understandings of Old Testament prof, uh, um, passages. What did the Old Testament say about these things, about the coming kingdom? You know, again, experiencing what they were under the thumb of Rome, they saw the Messiah coming in and doing something a lot different. In Zephaniah 3.15, it says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never fear evil again. This is a passage they would have held tightly to when Jesus was understood to be the, the coming Messiah. This is what they expected. Zechariah 14 verse 9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, which if you recall, that was one of Jesus' favorite ways to be referred to, son of man. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. A near and dear passage of what this Messiah would bring. When Christ spoke of the kingdom of God, that would be ushered in by the Messiah, the people didn't ask for a definition of what the kingdom was going to look like and how it was going to act. They didn't ask for that. They had their own expectations of what it would look like. You know, th those passages that declared Christ as a stumbling block was lost on them. They thought Christ at first to be talking in his ministry, in his earthly ministry, to be talking about world domination in some sort, in a, in a sense, for the Jews. And remember how they rallied around him at first. Osborne says that the coming of Christ was an end-time eschatological event breaking into the first century world. In the context of that first century world, the question for those encountering Jesus was not so much, what is he saying? But who is he? Who is he to be saying these things? Because eventually, things didn't reconcile for them. This is not what the Messiah is going to do. Or, in the words of John the Baptist, are you the one who is to come? John the Baptist had that same question. John the Baptist's question makes sense when you consider in, in light of that general understanding of the Jews in those days. Now, certainly, he had a more biblical view of things. But those passages that in Zephaniah and Zechariah and the like were very clear about what was going to be happening in the end times. 
the pain and humiliation that they felt on the subjugation of, of Rome, it did instigate very radical ideals of what the Messiah was to be. Now, I'm not saying, again, that John the Baptist was thinking completely this way or even um, moderately this way, but it is understandable why he would ask a question that he asked. Are you the one to come? Concerning what scriptures revealed up to that point. Uh, but I think it's interesting that how the, uh, and Osborne points this out in, his, in this chapter, he says, What's interesting was Jesus' response. How did Jesus respond to John the Baptist's question, are you the one who is to come? You know, many of us would prefer Jesus to say, yes, I am the one. How many times would you like the Lord to say, yes, choose A? (laughs) Um, Jesus' answer was far more biblically, theologically compelling that would make him engage his mind into what is scripture really telling us? Uh, Christ was in essence saying, don't take my word for it, John. What do your own eyes see? The words Isaiah has given to us, those words are coming to life in front of you. On Isaiah 35, verses five and six, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to, bl- to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Again, that's in Isaiah 61. There is God's rich blessing even in the present time as God rules. Something we always need to remember. Think of things that Jesus instructed John the Baptist to look at here as evidence of God's kingdom invading history before the final consummation of all things. You know, he told those to go back to John and tell him, the lame leaping, you know, the, the deaf hearing. Before Christ comes back and new heavens and earth are brought forth, um, we still see blessings. The blessings in the present time are primarily blessings of God's future um, consummated kingdom as we get to look forward to those things. But we still enjoy immense blessings and abundant life now. It's part of the title of the book, you know, fullness of life in the presence of God. Now, a fullness of life. Um, One scholar named George Ladd, he wrote this. He said, quote, the kingdom of God is the dynamic rule of God. The dynamic rule of God active in Jesus is also a present realm, a blessing into which those enter who receive Jesus' word, who receive the word of God about Christ. Jesus did tell his disciples, but blessed are your eyes for they see in your ears for they hear. That was the blessing that they weren't really grasping, that they were seeing these things and hearing these things, things that prophets long ago longed to see. 
In the light of the presence of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, no longer does one enter into right relationship to God through their ethnic identity in Abraham, just because they are a Jew by birth. This is wonderful news for the entire world to hear and to know. Blessing, true blessing is always specifically in Christ. This is the message of the New Testament. Just this morning, consider our corporate scripture recitation that we're going to say. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's all specifically in Christ. The blessings. All things that that verse in Colossians calls us to, all things certainly includes divine blessings. And they are through him and to him. And as we are in him, we have divine blessing. In this chapter, in chapter four of the book we're going through, Osborne says that, quote, the power of the kingdom is the power of the spirit and the, what he calls the theological math of spirit equals kingdom. It gets worked out through the rest of the New Testament, you know, through, the, through the acts and the epistles and the prophecy of revelation. That spirit equals kingdom understanding of things. He says, uh, this commenting on how Jesus handled those accusations that were brought to him by the Pharisees when they saw him exercise power over demons. And what did they say? They said he did this because he himself is demon-possessed. Now, Christ quickly refutes that foolish charge, saying, you know, logically, guys, that can't even hold water because that'd be Satan fighting against Satan. So be embarrassed about that in a sense. No, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus warned them about such blasphemies made against the Holy Spirit, which is what they were doing in that statement that he made. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Osborne comments, he says, where the spirit of God is at work in the present evil age, the future blessings of the kingdom are breaking in as well. As the spirit's working. In fact, the presence of the Holy Spirit is proof presented in Acts 15 verse 8. And that's when, you know, we see that passage of Peter referring to that experience he had with Cornelius. And how the Spirit came upon even the Gentiles, like it did on them. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the proof that was presented in that section in Acts that the saving grace of God has extended to the Gentiles. Now, where the blessings of the kingdom of God are present, they have been wrought by the power of the Spirit of God. 
You know, all this power that we experience as Christians that came upon us because of the Spirit coming upon us as a people and individually, as Christ himself explained this to the disciples, it is a benefit for you to, if I go away. For then the Helper comes. Throughout the epistles, the prophecy of the book of Revelation, we see the active work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Doing the, the business of God's kingdom. Every day, and even the smallest things that we do sometimes. Uh, to inherit the kingdom is to receive not just the blessing that was promised to the patriarchs, but the blessing of receiving Jesus' as Father. Our Heavenly Father inheriting Him as Father. Now, if that doesn't just blow your mind away. The Jews struggled at making such a connection there. Well, one of the tasks that we need to do and what the author is trying to help us do is understanding God's economy of blessing on earth. What's that? How does that work itself out? In Mark chapter 10, after we see Jesus blessing the little children, you know, the disciples freak out. Oh, no, hold back the children. No, let the children come unto me. He blesses the children. Jesus, he's traveling along and he's encountered by a rich young man. And we find some very insightful narrative here. Uh, Aaron actually talked about it recently in one of his sermons. Well, he encounters this man and this man asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus wants this man, and again, Aaron does a good job talking about this recently. He wants this man to know the condition of his heart and how he is confused about what eternal life means and what it equates to. Because he thinks he's got it made, really. He comes and asks Jesus, but I guess he just wants confirmation and maybe a pat on the back, who knows. Well, we find in that scene, Jesus treats the phrase eternal life and kingdom of God interchangeably. I always find it helpful to circle those things and draw line, connecting lines in my Bible when I see this stuff comes and we, we see these things. He, he tells his disciples how difficult it is to enter the kingdom with earthly wealth. And how do the disciples respond? Oh, yeah, I got that. Okay, now they're shocked at the statement. Scripture lets us know how shocked they are, revealing really their limited earthly view of kingdom blessing. Again, the view oh, that the Jews in general had of what it would look like when Christ the Messiah comes. What, what do they say? They say, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Why would Jesus' followers despair over a rich person not inheriting the kingdom of God. Why would they be bothered by this? One biblical scholar, David Garland, he sees that their answer there as an understanding um, of, of blessing. They possessed an understanding of blessing out of a mechanized view, a mechanical view of wealth equal blessing. 
suffering equals sin. Remember how Christ had to argue about the tower of Siloam falling on those people, you know, were they great sinners because of this? They had this mechanized view of blessing and curse. It was even a view that was held by Israel's wisdom teachers. You know, you could, on the surface, get that from reading the Proverbs if you don't understand what the Proverbs is trying to do. The disciples saw this rich young man as being obviously blessed. Surely he's blessed. So if he can't enter the kingdom, then who can? Who can be saved? The answer, it is only by God's power that one enters God's kingdom. Jesus' instructions to the rich man to sell all that you have to, and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. We know that they're not a universal command, or we should know they're not a universal command for all believers to sell all their earthly possessions. As a few have interpreted in church history. However, notes the author here, quote, we would be foolish, we would be foolish not to hear the warning in Jesus' words about material wealth in relation to the kingdom of God. Even though we're not commanded to go and sell everything, we would be wise to, you know, keep an arm's length there about the material wealth of things. Uh, wealth, you know, often, instead of being a proof of God's blessing upon his children, it can be a stumbling block, can't it? I know some of you are thinking, ah, I'm willing to try that one out. <laughs> um, but there's warning in it. A stumbling block that would want to tie us down to the present age. There is an inherent danger in having so much money that all of your felt needs are met in this life. The abundance of possessions can easily deceive someone into thinking they have the security that they need. They have the abundant life. You know, having money can... It can twist one into believing that everything can be had for a price. Even salvation. Clinging with undying loyalty to the blessings. Again, going through God to get to the blessings. You know, wealth, power, success, whatever. This can rob people of eternal blessings that they are to inherit in the age to come. They could find themselves like Demas, Paul's Demas, right? Falling in love with the world. That scene in Mark 10, you know, it's not over. It's not over because Peter has something to say in a very Peter way. He jumps in and he offers insight to Jesus. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. The way Jesus responds, it gives significant insight into what self-denial is, what kingdom blessings are. Jesus said in Mark 10, 29 through 31, said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, 
houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first the Lord's not trying to provide some simple formula here of you know give up possessions and you receive the kingdom of God he's merely trying to help his disciples understand blessing in a kingdom context in the present age as we saw and see in the Old Testament a growing family fertile land you know fertile livestock these both these are ideas that are frequently identified and associated with divine blessing and they certainly can be but here Jesus redefines what a growing family is and what it should be and where to look for fertile land you know a growing family of blessing is transformed Jesus transforms the thinking here into meaning a growing family of God across the globe new believers being added to the kingdom a fertile land transformed into meaning a new earth to look forward to a new and better Eden in fact he goes on to say Christ goes on to say says now in this time now in this time his disciples should anticipate persecutions but in the age to come eternal life or kingdom life again interchangeable the culmination of blessing that is the fullness of life in the presence of God will not be experienced until Jesus' disciples experience eternal life in the age to come. We won't experience it fully until the age to come. We are given this picture of anticipating this kingdom coming in Mark chapter 10. So, Despite the dawning of the kingdom in Christ, his followers will still, and we do, experience persecution in various ways. And there's sorrow we experience until that final day, that future day, where many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, happiness and the reality of an upside-down kingdom. We're about done here. Matthew in his gospel, he seeks to show how Jesus is the promised Messiah and how he, again, how he fulfills these Old Testament promises. Uh, we can also see in Matthew the relationship between wisdom and fullness of life in Christ's teachings. And there's no better place really to see this than the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, we read of the beginning of Jesus' sermon, often referred to as the Beatitudes, meaning happy or fortunate uh, uh, from, from the Latin. Now, many translations and uh, commentators, they translate the Greek word in these verses to blessed are, blessed are. One man, Jonathan Pennington, he says that this translation really fails to completely distinguish the idea of human flourishing and divine favor. You know, those two ideas being connected. So, he would argue, 
when you read the Beatitudes, we should not read um, God's divine blessing is upon or blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Instead, emphasis of Jesus' teaching in these verses, which is on the reality of discipleship in the light of Christ's coming kingdom, um, we should say happy or fortunate is the one who lives in the light of the kingdom of heaven and allows this future knowledge, this future reality and understanding to better define your, your presence in, this, in our experience in the world now as it is. And we see Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount as being instructive, they're ethical. Ethical words instructed to us how we are supposed to live in a right way. And they're also focused on the end time of things, around the coming of his kingdom. So when we look and look at the Beatitudes, you know, some things that you can see is a discord between the present experience that we have and yet the kingdom reality that we truly do have. Happy are those who are poor in spirit or blessed are, right? Happy, as this one man would argue is a better way to say it. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn, who are meek, who are hunger for, and thirst for righteousness, who are persecuted, who are reviled. Uh, of course, we naturally think to ourselves, these are not situations that would make me think of happiness or flourishing. However, not only is the kingdom present in Jesus' ministry, it is being redefined in his teaching. And that's what he's doing on the Sermon on the Mount. His, God's plan of salvation includes present blessings, on earth blessings of happiness or joy, joy which transcends a worldly condition. That's what James argues, right? When he says that we are consider those trials. He calls these things all joy. All joy. In the Beatitudes, Christ says, whoever loses his life will save it. You know, in the Psalms and Job, the Lord instructs his followers that Things aren't always what they seem. There is a way to have success in the world that does end in destruction, into some way of everlasting ruin. But there's also a, a way to experience suffering in the present that is full of big and even small victories over Satan that leads to everlasting life. So... I'm going to wrap up here because we're out of time. Um, in the already but not yet kingdom, right? You've, we have it coming in. Christ brought it in. But the fulfillment and the realization of all these blessings uh, that we look forward to is something that hasn't come yet in many ways. We are called like our Savior, we are called to carry first our cross. And then in the life to come, we will receive a crown. You know, God can use material wealth. He can do whatever he wants. He can use that material wealth. 
advantages of some sort and health as ways of blessing his people and praise God that he does. And it's not bad to pray for those things in the right context. But Jesus warns that these things run the risk of throwing off our, quote, redemptive historical time clock. You know, having that, what's called an over-realized eschatology. We can live for this world and losing sight of our future inheritance if we're not careful, so.